electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. It's Jim Cramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action. Good morning and welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm David Faber with Sarah Eisen and Mike Santoli. We're live from Post 9 at the New York Stock Exchange. Jim and Carl have the morning off. Let's give you a look at futures as we get ready to start the trading week. 30 minutes from now, you can see things have uh, turned decidedly positive. We'll see when we get going again, 29 minutes or so from now. Let's start uh, with our roadmap. And that starts with a major development amidst worries about the banking sector. As you probably know by now, UBS has agreed to acquire its troubled rival Credit Suisse. The price tag, a little more than $3 billion in UBS stock. Also, ahead, central banks, including the Fed and the European Central Bank, teaming up in an operation to keep U.S. dollars flowing through the global banking system. And shares of First Republic falling to all-time lows this morning. S&P downgrading the bank deeper into junk status. We'll discuss what's next for that troubled lender. Yeah, that uh, could be the more important story in some ways today. But let's start overall with the banks, including, of course, that UBS takeover of Credit Suisse. I'm reminded in some ways of that line. I think it was Hemingway from The Sun Also Rises. How'd you go bankrupt? Well, slowly at first and suddenly. Um, I mean, that's kind of what this is here. Um, We've been watching the demise of this franchise for years at Credit Suisse. The numerous missteps, the numerous management teams, the boards without real money in the game, so to speak, very small equity um, stakes, for example, of board members. We've talked about it in particular over the last six months. We've been talking about it a lot in terms of the asset flows out. So some of it predictable, and yet when it actually happened, it still was somewhat shocking. And it happened very quickly. Uh, Essentially, uh, the Swiss government said, you're done. You're done. And UBS, even though you don't really want to buy them, you're buying them. That's at least the way that my reporting has gone. Uh, and I think UBS, by the way, made it very clear on the call as well. You want to see the state's hand here? Well, no shareholder vote. They did a strange thing where they wiped these uh, high risk, let's call them bail in bonds, these AF1 bonds, $17 billion worth, a number of Cocoa. hedge funds. Right, Coco, number of hedge funds here in the States suffering on that one. But there was actually equity recovery value of like $3.2 billion, not to mention some upside because it's all stock. Um, so clearly the state said, we're in. We're not going to obviously let this bank fail. Uh, and now UBS owns it or will as soon as they get the proper regulatory approvals in other places. It'll close pretty quickly. And you can see what's happening to the stock price. That's a good sign. Uh, There had been some who were concerned that perhaps you would see a negative reaction in the market, continued concern about so many different things in terms of asset flows and everything else. No. Uh, And they're talking about $8 billion eventually in cost savings by 2027. Originally, UBS stock was down sharply on the Yeah, it was down like 16% at the lows, yeah. And we also saw the CDS, which is credit default spreads, widen out, which is a troubling sign for for UBS. Maybe the market is coming to the realization that there's now a monopoly in the Swiss banking system. The two biggest banks come together. That was always the case against doing this merger 
in the past. I think the other thing the market is grappling with is it's not a bailout. And this is kind of a common theme we're seeing in the U.S. as well. They're not bailing out shareholders, even though shareholders get some breadcrumbs here. This was an $8 billion valuation on Friday. $3 billion is peanuts. And the fact that the $17 billion gets wiped out on those high-yield, very risky bank debt, I think, causes a lot of concern in that market. It I mean, does. Good, good luck it raising, yeah. raising Again, debt Again, a typical there. bankruptcy, equity would go first. In this case, these bonds have gone completely to zero, but there is some equity recovery value. To your point, obviously, the market still was misjudging it, Mike, even as late as Friday in exactly. terms of trading, perhaps hoping that it would just be able to keep going on. It had that lifeline from the Swiss National Bank. It, it wasn't enough. Yeah. And that t- typically tends to be the thing where the market is just going to test and test and test. Is it, is it enough until you get some kind of overwhelming, convincing measure uh, here? And, you know, it, it is kind of fascinating because there is that maxim that says, you know, when policymakers start to panic, that's when markets can relax a little bit more. You know, if they have to go to these extraordinary measures, it's unclear that that's exactly the moment we're, we've hit just yet because it does seem as if they're trying to do enough, but not everything. Um, in terms of the, the, the equity value, $3.2 billion, I know it created a big stir in those bonds of other banks are selling off the similar uh, AT1 bonds. But, uh, you know... This $3.2 billion of equity value in the form of UBS shares, that's kind of for the common equity holders of Credit Suisse, um, it's not the same as the $18 billion in effectively cash or debt that would have been uh, given to those cocoa holders. So whatever the machinations and people thought that they ha- owned something that didn't play as they thought it would, I-, I think we set that aside. And then the bigger question turns into, is it going to be enough for the U.S. market to feel as if we have a backstop. And then what does the, you know, what does the Fed do at the same time it's creating these, uh, you know, the expanding these swap lines and and everything else? Does it change what happens? Yeah, trying to inject dollar liquidity because, you know, basically to the SMB, the Swiss National Bank, to get the dollars into the to the system there. You know, the the other thing is I can tell you, you know, according to a U.S. official, the Treasury was pretty involved here over the weekend. Treasury Secretary Yellen spoke to her counterpart in Switzerland on Friday when it became clear that something was going to have to get done, that what, was, what they were doing on the liquidity was not working enough. Remember, there were, there were concerns about counterparties restricting trades. That, and was, that kind of was the end here. Yeah. When, and I was starting to hear that, let's call it on Thursday. I think we talked about this a lot on Friday. It was clearly unclear exactly what was going to happen, but was, what was becoming clear was it wasn't going to survive in part because of counterparties pulling back. That was kind of the last straw, I think, for the Swiss National Bank and the Swiss government. Um, You know, important to note here uh, that UBS has complete freedom uh, in terms of pursuing those cost-cutting programs uh, as it chooses to do so. Uh, I mean, if you're going to get to $8 billion in savings on a run rate by 2027, you can imagine there's a lot of costs that potentially can be cut. They're going to have free reign to do that. There's nothing that comes along with this forced purchase, so to speak, that says now you can't cut any jobs. They can do them in Switzerland, and of course it comes back here to the United States. Remember, we've reported for some time about what was expected to be the hiving off of the investment bank here in the U.S. It would be under the name First Boston. It was going to be led by a gentleman named Michael Klein, uh, who was at one point an advisor and on the board at, uh, at CS, but then did a deal under which they were purchasing his firm, $175 million of purchase price there, and he would lead... Um, the investment bank here in the U.S., not going to happen anymore, it would seem. This is UBS's show now, uh, and it does not appear to include 
uh, a plan that had been uh, put in place. Unclear to me, I haven't been able to get a hold of Mr. Klein as well, sort of, but unclear as to whether there's some sort of a break fee there that will be paid. That deal did not close. Um, and what the people who work for CSFB now in the states are worried about, of course, is that jobs. their jobs are at yeah. risk. Right. When you talk about, co- I mean, it's a 167-year-old bank yeah. that, that in, in two days, with yeah. very little due diligence, was just basically forced into to UBS's hand. And they have, what, 50,000 global employees as of the end of the year? How, how do we look at this, Mike? Is this like a Bear Stearns moment? How do we look at this over the course I mean, of... First of all, the deal, maybe. There are some parallels to yeah. Bear But in the course of this, this loss of confidence in the global banking system. It's that sort of thing where you basically hope that getting absorbed by the, the, the bigger, healthier bank uh, is going to be enough. I don't want to say it's like Bear Stearns because then what you're saying is six when, months when later we see the real crisis, yeah. uh, which I don't really think there's any reason to think. What's also fascinating is a lot of the commentary in the press conference about the merger and everything was kind of pointing to the U.S. regional bank stresses and SVB as some kind of trigger point. It's totally questionable. I mean, once, but once the psychology of bank investors and counterparties is disturbed in a big way by something, it can be contagious. And we understand that. But you mentioned, I mean, Credit Suisse for as long as we can remember has been at the center of all the issues. Correct. I mean, whether even in the last few years, whether it was Greensill or obviously Arcagos, which we followed closely, a five and a half billion dollar loss, numerous management teams, poor risk management. This is not a new story. Right. And yet. And we talked about for years, would they ever force it to force it into UBS's hands? But when you said it, you sort of like, well. Maybe that could really happen, but would it? Now it has. Um, let's listen to Colm Kelleher, who we know well, of course, been one of the leaders at Morgan Stanley for many years under Gorman, but is now chairman of UBS. This is what he's talking about in terms of potential downsizing. Having been chief financial officer during the last global financial crisis, I'm well aware of the importance of a solid balance sheet, especially in challenging times like these, and UBS will remain rock solid. This transaction confirms and augments our strategy of growing our capital-light businesses. Let me be very specific on this. UBS intends to downsize Credit Suisse's investment banking business and align it with our conservative risk culture. Again, just goes back to what we were discussing in terms of potential future job cuts, both uh, in Switzerland but also here in the United States. And it's not as if, um, even though it is alarming that, you know, you have, and by the way, we remember, David, when there were the big three Swiss banks, right? Swiss Bank Corp uh, eventually merged in with UBS, uh, and now you have one. It's not as if European banking is, is there's capacity constraints there, right? There's plenty of banking capacity uh, in Europe. So it's, in that sense, the rationalization is not surprising. What I, I think is, is worth puzzling over right now is, the broader signals. How do you think about it as an investor when you get to one of these moments? Uh, you had, by the way, in October when the U.S. market made its low, that weekend before the low, before that CPI print, it was about CS going down. It was a, the rumor mongers where this is the Lehman right. moment, and that's when we bought it. And so the, the history, and I don't want to say it's here, but the history of important March market bottoms after you've had an October market low is, is something you can't lose sight of. It was 03, 02 into 03. It was 08 into 09. 
both of the cadence was exactly the same. You could even say 2016, October low, and then February. I don't think that's here. The market's not acting like it. It's acting resilient mostly because of the mega cap stocks and because of hope of the Fed and and all the rest of it. But uh, I do think that's one reason why you wouldn't be super negative, even though if anything, this makes recession more likely than not. Credit crunch uh, a little more of a hazard than not. So uh, it's, it is interesting in terms of what it's going to mean market-wise, if, you know, and, and that's what we have to puzzle out. Well, on. I think it depends on the performance of the regional bank stocks, right? right. Because I, yeah. I think, you know, we've, we've seen a number of interventions there, starting from last weekend's on guaranteeing depositors of SBB. That was last weekend's issue. And then the deposit infusion from big banks into First Republic Bank and all these things. And, and then there's word on Friday reports that the, the regional banks want the FDIC to guarantee more depositors. They've stopped short of that, partly because they can't do that. They, they need Congress for that. But it's not clear at this point yeah. that that needs to happen. Because remember, we talked to Wally Adiemo, the deputy treasury secretary, right here on the show on Friday. And he said the deposit outflows have largely stopped in the regional banks and that they were very encouraged. They have that plus a ton of liquidity. I think we have that soundbite. I thought it was really important. Oh, we'll, we'll play it for you later. But I thought it was really important that he signaled that yeah. because we don't get the real-time data on deposit flight from regional banks. We and don't. if that's true, that does solve it, it, one of the big problems here. There seems to be a sense right now, and you can just see from what we're looking at in terms of the free market, First Republic remains the issue yeah. right now. Uh, that's certainly what I'm picking up in every call that I'm making. Uh, and you can see it is down another 18.5%. This, despite, of course, that... Uh, plan uh, that $30 billion worth of deposits it received, it received from 11 banks last week. Um, it's still an issue. The hope is that it's the last issue, that this will be resolved in one way or the other. I can tell you a couple of things. Um, they've hired an investment bank, I'm fairly certain, to help, help them navigate this, potentially to help them sell themselves. That said, it's unclear to me that there's anybody who's stepped up to really engage in serious talks with, uh, with uh, First Republic. And Sarah, you know, what I was hearing last week was a $25 billion hole, perhaps an unwillingness of certain banks to step up because, of course, you have to take the marks, and in doing so, you impact your own book value. However, if the government were, be, were willing to be generous in some way or helpful, that might change things. But I don't know what you're hearing from Treasury, but what I have heard is that the government is willing to be helpful, but it's still not clear that that has resulted in anyone stepping up yet seriously for First Republic. As far as confidence measures go, I'm sure the government would be very happy to see deals get done in the, yes. in the regional bank I mean, space. It was a week ago especially. that I was hearing the, the government would welcome an, seeing First Republic potentially. But as far as backstopping, so, it's yeah. more complicated than that, not just politically, but also in the wake of Dodd-Frank. As I understand it, it's a little more difficult for them to just provide mm-hmm. funding to do that. So, so we see if, this, if these deals get done on their own. I think it's interesting that nobody's stepped in for SVB Bank, right? Not yet. Remember, no, they've we extended that, that deadline. Yeah. I don't know if that speaks more to what was on the books. And maybe. I mean, signature is done. That that actually well uh, did get done very quickly. And by the way, New York Community Bank Corp, which is you know taking on signatures, yeah. deposits, and some other businesses, that stock's indicated up higher. All the analysts are saying this is massively accretive. Right. They priced it to sell. Right. Uh, and that who knows if that brings out other uh, interested parties. Um, 
I, I did want to point out when it comes to First Republic Bank and tracking the stock. Yes. It seems like it's just wild. I mean, and, and, and there's not a lot of information content really in the in the tick by tick. It's a three and a half billion dollar market cap, equity market cap right now. It's a two hundred billion dollar balance sheet bank. Yes. It's right. So this is just a stub end of the capital structure. That's just a, a call option on Correct. what happens next. Correct. But there's a domino effect in banking. Well, exactly. And, but there also seems to be a hope, Mike, in the equity markets, at least, that once First Republic is dealt with, yes. whatever that means, and I don't know what that means, and I'm not sure anyone does, that we're kind of going to move past this. That I don't know that that's the, the case, yeah. but that seems to be the hope, that it's the last sort of problem child. It was unique in, the sa- in, in, in a similar but somewhat different way than SVB or Signature in that its assets are certainly concentrated yes. in a certain area in the industry, uh, that it has a large uninsured deposit base, so it sort of fit that. Yeah. But Big underwater hope, mortgage portfolio, right. too. And there's a hope that once it is dealt with, then we're done. It's the last on. acute situation. Yes. The chronic situation is, yeah, people, a lot of other banks have a lot of lock fixed rate mortgages that they're underwater on and all the rest of it. Um, and that's what you have to deal with after. But I do agree. That's that's the psychology. Also, weren't deposits more likely to leave immediately as opposed to two weeks later? So I think to your point, Sarah, about maybe the deposit outflow has slowed in general. The, the borrowing at the discount window in the Fed was seemingly concentrated in the western part of the country. We see reports of that today. Mm-hmm. So that would all fit together with you had a storm of, of deposit flight and then maybe it's calmed down. It's the Alamo, as David Rosenberg said in his report this morning when it comes to, to First Republic Bank. What a setup for Jay Powell on Wednesday, huh? Oh, yeah. We'll <laughs> talk more about that, of course. And when we come back, we're also going to talk about how you find a safe haven in this market environment. We're going to look at whether technology shares can continue what has been their upward momentum. Remember last week, it was the best week for the NASDAQ 100 since November. We get started with trading here in 13 minutes. Let's give you a quick look at futures. A lot more squawk on the street straight ahead. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big-picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Welcome back to Squawk on the Street amidst investor concerns about the banks. As we have pointed out, uh, technology shares appear to at least be somewhat of a safe haven during a strong week. There has been some difference of opinion here on this desk as to exactly why, (laughs) Michael and Sarah. But we can't get to that now. Instead, we're going to get to our next guest because he recommends sticking with Internet stocks such as Alphabet and Meta. Joining us now, Rosenblatt Securities Analyst Barton Crockett. He has a buy on Alphabet, Apple and Meta. Barton, what do you make of that move last week, and why do you believe it can continue? Look, I think that, uh, um, um, you know, there's a lot of kind of emotion out there. And so last week, I think um, interest rates, uh, um, the view is that they're pulling back, and that helps kind of your long-term multiple assumptions. So that's good for 
um, you know, many of these high multiple stocks. I think that, um, you know, when I look at our coverage group and the Internet part of that, um, you know, my preference is still for the, the quality names that are driving um, earnings. And um, I think the biggest movement has been in the, the, the names that are still kind of pre-earnings or marginal earnings, so the multiples are very high. Um, I think that a lot of the, the hope here is that um, the environment, um, that the macro is stable, um, and that if, if we look over the balance of this year, your comparisons get a lot easier as you go into um, the second, third, and fourth quarter versus the first quarter. So while you might, might be down a bit, you might be flattish in terms of your revenue trajectory starting the year, by the end of the year, you can be up in, in a steady state environment. Um, you know, that's great. I'm just not certain that that's how it's going to play out. If the macro gets more difficult, estimates are going to be coming down, and you're going to be looking for the safer stocks, which in my mind are the guys with some good earnings and good multiple support, like a meta, like an alphabet, um, and I'd also argue for Apple. Right. Uh, obviously, Meta shares have been an incredibly strong performer as well during the course of this year, in part or mainly, it would seem, due to the efficiency quest of its CEO. How important does that become in this overall environment, those companies in particular that seem to be embracing the idea that they should do more with less? Look, Meta is um, a special situation. It's crazy because it's such a large stock. Um, but, you know, they're pulling so many levers on expenses that we're engineering earnings momentum um, that is well in excess of what you can see at the other companies just because of, um, you know, what Mark's able to do on, on the expense side. I think there's more that could happen. Um, you know, I think one of the ideal outcomes for this company would be to take reality, um, that segment, spin it off. Uh, it doesn't need to be in the meta capital structure. You're getting no credit and a pure penalty for that and a separate capital structure. You know, those investors who align with Mark could, could rally into that. Um, is he talking about that? No. You know, do I have a lot of faith that that's going to happen? No. But sometimes when things make sense, they could happen. So there's option value there, plus earnings value, plus, you know, a company that's managing itself much better. So, um, you know, a, a really tremendous story and a difficult moment for that stock. Yeah. Barton, got to keep it short here, given we're up against the uh, opening yeah. bell coming up. But thank you for uh, your quick call there. Appreciate it. Great. Thank you. Coming up, we're going to have a closer look at global central banks' new steps to boost liquidity amidst those concerns about the financial sector. Here's one more look at futures. We've got an opening bell uh, seven minutes away. Don't go anywhere. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Well, you talk about the gainers, and then you end up with the banks again. Uh, as Mike said, of course, a lot of volatility. We've seen a lot of these company stocks down sharply last week, but it looks like they're going to have a strong open. We'll see, of course, when we get that opening bell four and a half minutes from now. I think that lifting the FDIC insurance cap is a good move. Now the question is, where's the right number on lifting yeah. it? But recognize that 
we have to do this because these banks are under-regulated. And if we lift the cap, we are requiring or relying even more heavily on the regulators to do their jobs. U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts on CBS's Face the Nation yesterday making the case for lifting FDIC insurance caps. She joined us as a guest last week also talking about her belief in the need for more regulation generally for banks such as Silicon Valley Bank. Look, this is the problem. $10.1 trillion of money in the U.S. banking system is insured. That's about 56.8% of total deposits. So $17.8 trillion uninsured. And the question is, have they ring-fenced this? Or if you're at community banks, Mike, are you just going to want to distribute it more evenly? Go to the money center banks, to the J.P. Morgans, where you feel more secure. That psychology is out there right now. And if they don't do anything about sure. it, With the added pressure for now of very high short-term Treasury bill rates, that's also making it very attractive to get away from bank deposits as opposed to keeping it in a smaller bank. So we'll see if that gets fixed, if uh, the market's right and the Fed's going to be cutting by a full percentage point by the end of the year. Yeah, well, we want to talk more about the Fed. Let's take a look at the real-time exchange back at our headquarters. By the way, doing the honors here was uh, Visa celebrating its 15th listing anniversary. Remember that? That was one of the biggest IPOs of all time. It was yep. NASDAQ, critical event management company, Everbridge. Sarah, we haven't really talked about the Fed. It's a big week. It's, it's an exciting week. week. Yeah. Because there's a real debate going on in the market and, and beyond about what the Fed should do on Wednesday. Because a lot has changed since we last heard from Fed Chair Jay Powell when he testified before Senate banking. And he was leaning, it sounded like, toward a 50 basis point increase. Now the question is, will he step down to 25 or pause because of all the turmoil in the banking system? The consensus appears to be still 25. Why? We have an inflation problem. All the data has shown that. We have a services inflation problem. Ex-housing, there still are troubling trends on the inflation print. And I really think that Christine Lagarde of the ECB gave him a blueprint on how to do this. Raise rates, continue your inflation fight, and keep financial stability by all the other measures that they have, including their balance sheet tools, which they've used already. They're doing swap lines now. They are increasing liquidity. We saw a $300 billion increase in the balance sheet last week. So the, so the idea that they're going to do a, what's called a dovish hike is really what is priced in and seems to be the best way for them to signal we're not done with inflation, but we are worried about what's happening in the banking system. The really interesting part of this meeting is going to be this is one where we get a new dot plot, which means we get new projections from the Fed members about where they think rates are going for the rest of the year and into next year. And the market currently thinks this is a one and done. They're done with the tightening cycle. I think it'll be interesting if they signal they can maybe do another one after this if there's still the inflationary problem and, and whether the market starts to fight that. You know, I think it's interesting in the sense that I don't know that there is a clear, true consensus. I agree with you in terms of economists handicapping what's going to happen. I think more is still sticking with a potential hike. But the market itself is almost 50-50. It's almost never the case two days before a meeting that you have that kind of a toss-up type of scenario. I also wonder, you know, how much they're thinking about this in terms of, 
Powell you know, gets on the record and says they don't like the idea of pausing and restarting. Like, he sort of locked himself into this mode of, 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 of making a pause a much larger signal than it might otherwise be in a different cycle, where you could pause, look around, see what's going on. Uh, and some people feel like there's just a... I think it would signal panic as well. I, I, look, I, I think that, I, I've been saying for days, they really want the conditions under which they can go 25. And they think they might have it right now, right? The markets are not falling apart at the moment. Now, the, the, the tougher part to, to actually figure out is this credit contraction that we expect coming from, you know, r- smaller banks pulling back, regional bank stress, all of those things was not in their models in terms of what's going to happen uh, in the latter part of the year. On the other hand, the existing dot plot from December, their consensus projections, was for much weaker growth than we've seen in the economy so far. And probably lower inflation, right? I think they thought inflation was probably going to start to come down a little bit more by this point in the year. Well, I think that's the debate now, is how much is this banking problem going to shave off GDP, right? We know it's going to lead to tighter lending standards. It's, we've already seen tighter lending standards going into this. It's going to get a lot worse. Everybody knows that. So J.P. Morgan is out saying a half a point to one point off of GDP, because of we're, what we're about to see. And, and the thing is, community banks, regional banks, are such key players in things like residential mortgages, commercial and industrial loans. What's going to be very interesting, which you, doesn't usually get a lot of airtime or play, is, is, the, is the Fed report, the Savings and Loan Officer Survey, which comes out in early May, which okay. tells you just how tight the standards have become. What are your expectations, Sarah? On the economy? No, on the Fed. On the that they'll go 25 basis points. This is a Fed that has told us it is super serious about inflation. If it backtracks now, then that's a signal that it is really worried, not just about financial stability, but what the impact, how deflationary this could be, how how much this could harm the economy, which, by the way, there are plenty of economists who will tell you it is. Peter Orzag, for instance, you know, who's now at Lazar tweeting they, they should... The Fed should should operate like a Mohs surgery, where they should be very careful and and pause and see how much damage is done. It's just not what they've been doing. They've been front-loading rate hikes to try to squash inflation, and they might have just done that because they broke something. Right. But it's not showing up in the data yet. And until they get that, yeah. the signal is that they're not going to be as serious on inflation. It is true. I mean, Jan Hatzis at Goldman he thinks pause. went to a pause, and he's been pretty, you know, he's actually been bullish on the economy, so he didn't think there was much. Only they're going to have people in that room. Now, they, they get together tomorrow. And they're gonna, you're going to have people in that room saying, look, everything that makes up inflation is rolling over except for shelter, and we know that the measures are really lagging in that sense. So I'm not saying that that's an all-clear on inflation, but you're going to have that camp vocally saying, what are we doing here? Paul McCulley saying the Fed's done. Like once you get to this point where you see some of the impact of the aggressive tightening you've done, uh, it's time to, you know, in a sense, back away and and, and see what else. But then they're know, not data up. dependent. That's right. That's right. They're not dependent on the data they said they were dependent on. We got inflation expectations lower last week. Those things are moving in their direction. So it, it all makes for, you know, probably a pretty interesting couple Look, of the days. The consumer is still in good shape. Well, yeah. So far, no, the consumer right. has that's been right. in very good shape. And and before this all started, the Atlanta Fed GDP tracker for the yeah. quarter was what? In the 2% range? Uh, almost to the 3%? 3%? Yeah. Right, Closer so to things three. have been strong. I'm not saying that this isn't no, going to have an impact. I think it for sure will. We just don't know exactly how much or how. And the other thing we don't know is what kind of phone calls they were getting over the weekend. Like, just exactly how much did it seem like they were just being proactive? On the swap lines, you mean? On the swap lines and on other banks coming. Well, they're thinking much... a lot about other banks. They're exactly. Thinking, yeah. I mean, they've been, they've been working on 
various scenarios yeah. for, for some time. I mean, I know any number of people who've been involved, at least in some discussions. Although, listen, they can feel a little better today when you take a look at what we're showing you right there. Yeah. Many, of the, many of the regionals are showing uh, positive uh, and gains this morning, at least, in the very early going, other than First Republic shares, which remain very volatile. Reported earlier, it's, um, my understanding that they have hired a bank to help them look at alternatives to the extent there are any out there. Sarah's point in mind might be some help from the Treasury, so to speak, in some fashion, if there were to be a potential buyer for First Republic. It's unclear at this point, but uh, that's the one name that continues to be a focus. But overall, maybe the Fed will feel better when they take a look at some of those some of those. Uh, stock's performance, at least in the early going here, the idea that we're getting towards the end of this mini-crisis. Yeah, I mean, financial yeah, conditions have tightened, right? That would be the other case for pausing. Yeah. But, but, if, but if we're not spiraling in a loss of confidence as the way it felt on a few days, I don't know, last week or the week before, yeah. I also think, ring you know, a quarter point, as I've been saying, like on top of as much as they've done, it probably doesn't seem like the stakes are, are super high unless the market just chooses to take it as, uh, you know, kind of a, a complete 10 year on the on the on the Fed's part. Right. As I mean, to listen, what's going like you on. can always get people worrying about, you know, you can name an institution. I want to go back to Europe. I mean, Deutsche Bank. Sure. Right. I mean, you know, unclear yeah. that there's anything at oh, all. Exactly. But yeah. You can figure things out. That's the concern, though. All right, right. where do people move next in terms of How much harder does the concern? job get, though, if we're at 4.75 to 5% versus 4.5 to 4.75 in the Fed funds? That's the question, right? I mean, really, in the grand scheme of things, they can act so fast. They have these tools. Um, there's some elegance to getting the upper end of the, of the range for Fed funds to 5% even and, and seeing what happens. From there, I would point out the open. We have seen a reversion of the, the trend in terms of Nasdaq outperformance. It just got very stretched. Uh, you have the uh, Nasdaq 100 in particular, you know, down half a percent. The Russell 2000 up three quarters of a percent. So at least on Monday morning, it's sort of just spilling back uh, from what happened last week. Well, you need to do a relative index between the banks and the and tech. It's either banks working or tech working, right? That's that's 100. They're on the opposite ends uh, of the of the spectrum. Yep few movers to point out today. I was watching Foot Locker, guys, because they reported and have an investor day today. It's, it looks like it's going to be a big winner. The stock is up 7%, which wasn't clear pre-market. It was a huge beat on the quarter for Foot Locker, 97 cents per share. The expectation was around 55. Comps were a lot better, but the guidance came in a lot lower than expected. So there were some concerns about what that signaled, especially on, on margins and on comps. Mary Dillon, the CEO, is holding her first investor day. So I think a lot of, well, a lot of folks will be focused on the commentary we should get in the next few hours here, but appears to be a winner. She said uh, there, there's a high bar because she's there. Remember, she was at Ulta, David, and hugely yes. successful. So Foot Locker's prospects have brightened since her her entrance. And also, interestingly, Nike reports tomorrow after the bell. And these two are sort of their fates are Aligned, you know, Nike obviously a huge supplier for Foot Locker. Last quarter on Nike's call, Mary Dillon and Foot Locker got a call out from the executives saying that they were sort of encouraged about working and growing together. So, something that made Foot Locker investors pretty excited because that relationship has sort of been on the rocks in recent years. Nike also getting a little benefit of the of the quality bid in the market. Uh, actually, sure. it's up, you know, two percent this month. Uh, in a down, broader tape. So, um, not tech. When but. I do think of Nike, though, I, I tend to also think of China and the risks yeah. to that company. And, of course, we should point out that she and Putin are together. 
Uh, we'll see what comes out of any of those uh, talks that they're having. Chinese try to assert themselves as a diplomatic player on the world stage, but of course there is also that concern that should they actually become more bellicose in terms of their support. That's a scary thing, yeah, right? And how the U.S. Scary. would react to very, any escalation there. Very. If you were to see them say, yes, we're going to support them with some form of arms, that would create an entire new and very negative spiral in U.S.-Chinese relations. And then also we got TikTok here in the States, of course, that continues to be um, much discussed in terms of whether that app will be in some uh, form or other banned, whether there are various structures that can be pursued, whether a sale needs to be pursued um, in terms of at least these national security concerns of TikTok. Obviously, the potential demise of TikTok were it to really happen has been beneficial, at least to the stock prices of Meta, as we pointed out, Jones Reels, and to Snap, shares of which have also uh, legged up higher since a lot of this talk became more serious lately. For sure. Well, I was going to point out, um, actually, the biggest upside contributor to the S&P, at least so far, is Berkshire Hathaway. It's only up 1.2 percent. Uh, but it has, of course, done so much better than the rest of the financial sector, which it is categorized with the rest of the financials somewhat imperfectly. Uh, but, yes, reports over the weekend, the administration perhaps have been in touch with Buffett about maybe some some kind of participation in, uh, in investment or something else with regard to the regional banks. You wonder if the stock's up because we didn't need it or it didn't happen or maybe it could happen. Or if it happens, it's going to be on incredibly advantageous terms, which is typically the way when it comes to Warren Buffett <laughs> and when he agrees to put money at risk in these types of things. So uh, obviously a big holder of, uh, of Bank of America has been for, you know, since the crisis. So he's, he's in there. Uh, it's just not necessarily in this way of the somewhat subscale uh, regional banks, uh, though it, it might own U.S. Bank Corp as well. I haven't heard anything about it. I just know that once we get into these periods, there's always a search like yeah. for a white knight, right? Whether Jamie Dimon last week or, or Warren Buffett. You know, and, and he was there during the financial crisis, oh, sure. right? Buying shares to instill also a lot of confidence, incredibly but no great indication terms here. Right. for Berkshire uh, that were unavailable to anybody else because, of course, it's Warren Buffett, and he brings that certain patina that basically says everything's going to be okay. So whether it was GE or Goldman or Bank of America through the years, that Mike, he has always gotten those right. uh, convertible deals that were unavailable to anyone else. Look. His phone only rings. I'm not sure. I'm not sure it goes out, you know. And so if you're that person and you've built that up over the years, you have this financially impenetrable uh, balance sheet and all the rest of it. Then if you need to call him, it's because you're willing to, uh, you know, tilt things uh, in his favor, I suppose. Um, We should come back to UBS, uh, stock of which is now up very nicely uh, after, of course, that forced uh, purchase, so to speak. The Swiss government stepping in saying you're buying Credit Suisse. This is what you're going to pay. <laughs> uh, and they are actually using their own stock for the deal. It hasn't closed as of yet, but they're expected to get all the necessary approvals very, very quickly. Uh, let's call it $3.2 billion worth of their own stock. But it's already worth a bit more to uh, Credit Suisse shareholders. You can see that stock is off of its lows. Of course, it's worth about $3.2 billion, at least at the outset. Credit Suisse's market value was some $8 billion, so you can see what's happened to uh, to the stock, but much worse for some of those bondholders and those what they call bail-in bonds, whatever you want to call them, high-risk bonds that they had issued, some $17 billion that are being zeroed. And the Saudi National Bank, which maybe can thank itself for starting all this when the <laughs> last week in an interview, I mean, it would have been something, but in this case, it was this, where they said they are not going to go past 9.9%. They've come out and just said, 
their position in Credit Suisse constituted less than 0.5% of uh, total assets um, and 1.7% of their investment portfolio. And obviously, it's not a zero because they get a chance to live on yeah. given the potential benefits of the combination itself and the fact that it is all stock. And they'll become a UBS shareholder, presumably. Correct. Right. Quickly wanted to point out gold, if we want to take the temperature of the, the macro stress. It actually popped above $2,000 earlier, about 2014, $2,014 an ounce was, was the high, and it has backed off from there. So, again, it's a little bit of that barometer of how afraid are we. And the kind of money that's in motion when you're worried about, you know, Swiss bank wealth management business is the sort of type that might diversify out into gold. Uh, gold's been acting very well, but we'll see if this today was a little bit of a short-term uh, kind of crescendo of excitement about the safety attributes of gold. Just below that $2,000 mark. Before we had to break, let's give you a quick bond report. Take a look at how treasuries are faring this morning after quite a dramatic move last week where the two-year yield moved down 70 basis points, largest weekly fall since October 1987. They're firmer today, edging a little higher, 3.87 ahead of a big Fed week. Decision, news conference, and outlook from Fed Chair Powell on Wednesday. The 10-year note yield, 3.4%. Squawk on the Street will be right back. Dow's up more than 200 points. All right. Big banks doing pretty well so far. Uh, this morning, you can see J.P. Morgan, Goldman, Morgan Stanley. Got Wells up, Bank of America, City. Yeah, there you go. Gives you a sense, at least in terms of sentiment right now on that sector. We're back after this. One of the big headlines from the weekend, the world's major central banks taking coordinated steps to boost liquidity in the banking system. Senior economics reporter Steve Leisman here on the CNBC Newsline. Steve, with more on what this means for the financial markets, because when you when you hear about dollar swap lines, it does take you back to crisis periods. Yeah, that's uh, the two times it's been used, Sarah. As you said, the the Fed announcing it had agreed with five other central banks making dollars more available. That's essentially what they do, saying they'll provide what they're calling enhanced swap lines. They were going to auction off seven-day money every day instead of just once a week, which is the existing setup. So what's a swap line, just in case you have been paying attention here? Central banks, they exchange currencies makes the currency more available in an individual banking system. So, for example, the ECB would deposit euros at the Fed. The Fed deposits dollars at the ECB of a like amount. So the question is, is this preemptive or is it needed? There was no indication, I can't find them in any of the rates uh, out there, of any kind of dollar scramble or dollar shortage, um, which is why you might do something like this. Uh, But it does have the potential to suggest that one exists uh, and that the situation is Worse than it appears, you can see that, uh, as Sarah was saying, it was used a lot during the great financial crisis, again during the pandemic. They're relatively quickly unwound, have not been uh, needed recently. Crops put in place preemptively for the CS First Boston UBS merger. Luke Crandall writing, if, you, if it's needed, you stop the probability of something spinning out of control. If it's not needed, you get a data point every day showing it's not needed. Question of financial stability, as you guys have been talking about, linked to what the Fed does next, the market trading call it 50-50. It had been a little more towards no hike. Now it's 47, no hike, 53, probability of a hike. And as you've been reporting, Goldman Sachs and forecasting no hike. City and J.P. Morgan, they're on board with a quarter. My take is Powell and the Fed are going to make up their minds uh, about the financial system and the stability in the next couple of days. 
And that's all closely tied to the extent to which deposits are or are not flowing out of the regional and smaller banks. Sarah? Yeah, and the indications look better on that, at least if you look at the share prices or, you know, the Treasury Deputy Treasury Secretary joined us Friday, said deposit outflows have stopped and are even looking better. Steve, question on the balance sheet measures, which is sort of wonky but important because it's their way of dealing with all of this financial stability issues. There's kind of a debate of whether that is QE or not. Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson comes out and says it's not QE. They're going to get the loans back. But we are seeing the Fed balance sheet expanding again. And I just wonder if that's bullish for stocks. Well, I don't think it's QE because you have to think about, like, for example, if J.P. Morgan has a flow of deposits on its uh, books, is it going to use that money to to be required reserves for loans? I don't know the extent to which J.P. Morgan will think of that as permanent. Also, these loans, it looked like if you do a real wonky analysis of the balance sheet. It looked like most of the money taken down of those funds was short-term, and you wouldn't do that if you thought you were going to use it for lending. So I don't think it creates new money in the economy. It does boost the reserves at the Federal Reserve, but that money can relatively go, quickly go away once financial stability is restored. Steve, thank you. Steve, please for joining us. It's, it's interesting, the QE question, Sarah, because, I mean, on one hand, you look at just the aggregate size of the balance sheet, it went up, but yep. it's collateralized lending, right, which is very right. different than the Fed bidding right. outright they get paid, they for bonds. They should get paid back. Yeah, and, right. yeah exactly. They will. They have, you have to pledge longer-term assets at the, uh, you know, at, the, at the Fed. But some are taking, taking calm in the fact that the balance sheet is not tightening, sure. declining, which is a headwind for... I mean, but it's not like they're, I get your point, they're not injecting global liquidity right. into the system that should find its way to all sorts of risky places. But the other piece of it is, I mean, look, the market's been uncomfortable, it's been choppy for months, but it's not any lower than it was last May when the balance sheet was like eight, $800 billion higher, right? So, I mean, you have had some QT while it was, you know, the market's been on the defensive, but not panicking. Um, we do have, Mike, that... Reversal not unexpected, of course, as money moves into the banks. It yeah. is moving out of technology to a certain extent. We'll see whether that trend continues at all. But we yeah, the other it. piece of it is the, the, the average stock, the equal-weighted S&P is up by 0.7% right now. So it's outperforming the S&P just because the larger ones are, are, are lagging. Right. All right, when we come back right here, we're going to have more, of course, on the banks, including that UBS takeover of Credit Suisse. And First Republic looking at uh, what are close to all-time lows. Keep it here. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 